Good morning. Well, did you see the snow this morning? Yes. That's why I'm wearing my snowman tie. Uh, yep, it's already melted, though. All right, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. And today we ask your Holy Spirit to be with us to enlighten our minds as we uh, discuss and uh, explore some concepts that have often been a, a source of confusion and and uh, distress amongst uh, various groups, we pray that you will allow us to see the, the beauty of your character, the beauty of your kingdom, and the beauty of your methods as we study today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are uh, doing lesson number 11 in our uh, quarterly origins, and the title of the lesson this week is Sabbath, a Gift from Eden. And uh, just before we get into the actual lesson, I want to follow up just on a point from last week when somebody um, read a quote. This was out of Councils on Health, page 152. It says, I frequently sit down to tables of brethren and sisters, see that they are using great amount of milk and sugar. These clog the system, irritate the digestive organs, and affect the brain. Anything that hinders the active motion of the living machinery affects the brain very directly. And from the light given me, sugar, when largely used, is more injurious than meat. And I just want to uh, tell you that uh, the the science shows that um, processed sugar, white sugar, um, sweets like that, uh, are highly oxidizing, meaning they produce molecules in your body that cause oxidative damage to the body. Studies show that people eat high sugar, diets, fast foods, boxed foods, donuts, muffins, cookies, cakes frequently have a 40% higher rate of depression than people who don't eat such foods. And the high oxidation increases inflammation in the body, which accelerates cardiovascular disease, accelerates aging, accelerates risk of dementia. And in our DVD that's free out there for you guys here, um, Modern Medicine, Biblical Technology, and the Brain, um, there's a lecture on the aging brain, and I actually go into great detail on the oxidative stress that, uh, that sugars and stuff can do to the, to the body. So you might want to pick that up and check it out. All right, um, let's go on to our lesson. And I don't, has any of you gotten emails that are targeting Seventh-day Adventists that are uh, making, taking the position that the seven, the Sabbath, the seven-day weekly Sabbath uh, from Sunset Friday to Sunset Saturday is not the biblical Sabbath, that that, that, that is an error um, that has occurred because of a solar calendar and the biblical Sabbath is made based on a lunar calendar? Have, have anybody gotten these emails that are targeting Seventh-day Adventists? Okay, well, I've gotten several from people uh, making taking this position. And uh, if you read them, and they've got websites, and, and they've got, uh, and, they, and, and you're probably going to get one in the near future. You can take the time and research it if you want. I'm going to run down the, the issues for you very quickly. Um, but the point that they make is that, uh, that um, the weekly Sabbath in, that we celebrate is not biblical because the because it's based on a solar calendar and the Bible calendar was a lunar calendar, um, and what happens in their arguments, if you actually dig down into it, is that they've taken um, different pieces of information and tried to, that that apply to different things and tried to integrate them and make it apply to the to one thing. Example: the Bible talks about annual festivals like Passover, uh, Feast of Tabernacles, and these types of things, and these are also in the Bible called Sabbaths. Uh, and they're based on, on, calculated on the lunar calendar. The Jew, Jewish uh, people also celebrated a new moon Sabbath. Every new moon they had a Sabbath celebration that was based on the lunar calendar. And they've taken these texts and then tried to make them apply to the weekly Sabbath. But the Bible does talk about a weekly Sabbath laid out in Genesis chapter 2, 
confirmed in Exodus chapter 16 when the children of Israel gathered manna for six days and every seventh day there was no manna supplied to them that went on for decades while they were wandering in the wilderness. Confirmed again in the Ten Commandments, six days shall you labor and the seventh day is the Sabbath. So um, their argument that this is based on a lunar calendar actually doesn't hold up when you compare it to other elements of Scripture. Um, they then come back with a different argument that says, well, the Bible says that the sun and moon and stars are appointed to uh, determine the, the times and seasons. Therefore, the Sabbath must be determined by the phases of the moon, because that's what God said uh, we'll be using to determine times and seasons. Um, again, this misapplies scripture, um, because the significance of the weekly Sabbath is actually what's so powerful about it is it's not based on any astronomical phenomenon. It's based on the creation that God built into our, uh, our, our existence. We'll come to the creation of the Sabbath in a moment. Then they argue that, well, the current Sabbath is faulty because of the change in the Gregorian calendar, uh, and it's different uh, than the, the calendar the Jews used. This argument also fails to take into account that the switch from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar did not change the weekly cycle, it just changed the date. And what happened in 1582 is they went from Thursday, October 4, 1582, to Friday, October 15, 1582. So they actually just changed the date by 10 days. And that's what they did. But the weekly cycle did not change. Evidence for a weekly Sabbath that occurs from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. Obviously Genesis 2-2, the end of creation week. Exodus 16, I already mentioned the, the manna occurring for six days. And every Sabbath there was no manna falling. Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Um, but even more so, the Jewish people who live on earth today... Uh, Generation after generation in an unbroken chain of human history, down through the generations, have been celebrating the same Sabbath since Exodus 16, and they continue to celebrate that same Sabbath. Uh, Jesus worshipped on the same Sabbath that the Jews worship today. Um, New Testament has many Sabbath controversies, which revolved, which never revolved around which day they should worship on, but always revolved around what Jesus was doing on that day and the behaviors that he engaged in. The New Testament has many... Um, uh, so the point being that the Jewish leadership being upset that he was healing on Sabbath and they're picking grains of uh, wheat on Sabbath, how much more upset would they have been if Jesus tried to say, hey, this isn't even the right day, we need to do it on this day. It would have been a much bigger deal. Um, the languages of the world, many of which have Sabbath for the name of the seventh day of the week, what we call Saturday, Arabic, Sabbat, Armenian, Shabbat, Bosnian, Subato, Bulgarian, Sabato, um, Corsican, Subatu, uh, Croatian, Subata, Czech, Subata, uh, uh, Georgian, Sabati, Greek, Savato, Indonesian, Sabtu, Italian, Sabato, um, or Sabato, um, Latin, Sabatum, uh, Maltese, Is, Sip, I can't even say that one, um, Polish, Sabato, Portuguese, Romanian, Russian, Serbian, Slovak, Slovene, Somalian, Spanish, Sudanese, Ukrainian, all these languages of the world call Saturday the Sabbath in their language. Documents of history which record the historical accuracy that Saturday is the days the Jews observed when Christ was on earth. And the early Christians also observed that day. And then the admission of the Catholic Church itself that Sabbath of the Bible was Saturday. This is from the Catholic Encyclopedia, volume 4, page 153. The church, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath or seventh day of the week to the first, made the third commandment refer to Sunday as the day to be kept holy as the Lord's day. So basically... Um, if you get this email um, suggesting that somehow that the seventh-day Sabbath is not the biblical Sabbath, it should be based on a lunar calendar rather than the way we do it, 
it's uh, a confused mishmash of different disparate Bible texts that are applying to different things, trying to make it into one. Now, let's get into the real meat, what I want to talk about today. The Seventh-day Adventist Church has held a certain view of the importance of the Sabbath. And I'm going to read a view often promoted, and then explore what you think this means in some detail. And this is just one place. It's said in many, many ways. So this is a succinct way it's said, but we could read many others. We're not going to do that. This is out of Eight Testimonies uh, 117. It says, The sign or seal of God is revealed in the observance of the seventh-day Sabbath, the Lord's memorial of creation. The mark of the beast is the opposite of this, the observance of the first day of the week. How many have heard that before? Okay. This is uh, very, very succinct, stated many different ways. Any concerns or questions about this statement? For instance, is the issue in our salvation, in our preparation to meet Jesus, in our being ready to translate into heaven without seeing death, as simple as which day of the week a person worships upon? We just worship on this day, we're saved. That's it. So if we take statements like that, I'm not saying that statement's false, but if we take that statement and, and, and look at it very superficially, and say, hey, you know what? That's it. That's the key. I just worship on this day. Never avoid worshiping on this day. Make, and, and, and avoid work and all types of worldly things on this day. I'll be saved. Is that it? Comes down to that. You have to eat the right food too. <laughs> <laughs> if a person absolutely worships on this day of the week and and and, and rigidly clings to it, does that guarantee they won't get the mark of the beast? Those who crucified Christ 2,000 years ago, let me read the statement again. The sign or seal of God is revealed in the observance of the seventh-day Sabbath. That's what it says. Those who crucified Christ 2,000 years ago wanted him off the cross by sunset because? They wanted to observe the seventh day of the week. Does that mean they then had the seal of God? They observed the seventh day of the week. And if we take this very concretely without thinking deeper... Then we would, if we just apply it, you know, what was said, we, you know, Ellen White said it, we should believe it, don't ask any questions. Observing the seventh day of the week means you have the seal of God. They, were, they wanted Christ off the cross to observe the seventh day of the week, that they have the seal of God. Something more is going on here. This is what I'm trying to get you to think. We have to think deeper than just the superficial level. Does Satan actually care if a group of people worships on the seventh day Sabbath as long as they worship him on the seventh day Sabbath? Do you think he would really care? No. So, how should we uh, understand the above statement? What is a mark or a sign? Think about just a mark or a sign. It's a symbol that stands for or signifies something else. The sign of the cross stands for what? The mark of the fish. You know what I mean by the fish, right? Stands for what? The goat head stands for what? A pentagram is the mark of what? Okay? So if someone wears a cross, which is a sign of our Savior, does that mean they're saved because they have the sign of the Savior? If someone has a fish sticker on their car, does that mean they're saved because it's a sign of Jesus? If someone has a goat ornament hanging on their Christmas tree. Does that mean they are condemned because a goat head symbolizes Satan? If someone has a pentagram 
sticker on their car, does that mean they're lost because pentagrams can represent the demonic? Yes, no? No. Okay. If someone worships on the Sabbath, are they saved because it's a sign of God? So the passage which you read that say the Bible Sabbath and its observance is a sign or seal of God, whereas Sunday and its observance is a mark symbolizing the beast, if we, if we take those very literally and don't ask any questions, are these themselves the reality or are they signs or marks of some deeper reality? Just as the fish, cross, goats, and pentagram are signs and marks of some other reality. Could a person wear the flag or uniform of one country, which marks them as being a member of that country, the uniform being an external, visible sign of who they serve, but could the person actually be a traitor and fighting for the other side? You remember U.S. Army Major Nadal Hassan shot and killed 13 people at Fort Hood in November 2009? Whose uniform was he wearing? Whose side was he on? So even if we accept that the day upon which one worships is a mark of loyalty to one side or the other, does that actually inform us of whom is on which side? Get my point here? Yeah. Is it possible the days mentioned are signs because they symbolize something that demarcates God's government from Satan's government? Could they stand as signals, signets, of the mode of governing each side uses? Could these days in their origin as days of worship contain the very elements of the two types of governing, God's type versus Satan's type of governing? We'll keep that idea in mind as we read a few more quotes from the same person that d- described the Sabbath as a sign and the, and the Sunday as the mark of the beast. This is out of um, Christ's Triumphant, page 350. The third angel is to go forth with great power. Let none ignore this work or treat it as little importance. The truth is to be proclaimed to the world that they may see the light. This is our work. The light we have upon the third angel's message is the true light. The mark of the beast is exactly what it has been proclaimed to be. All in regard to this matter is not yet understood and will not be understood until the unrolling of the scroll, but a most solemn work is to be accomplished in our world. What do you think that means? All regarding the mark of the beast is not yet understood. When it's presented in in evangelistic series that you've gone to, the mark of the beast, do they present this as, you know, this is what we understand so far, but we really don't understand it all yet. Or do they understand it, they, they present it as, this is it, this is the deal. If you worship on this day, then it's the mark of the beast. If you worship on this day, it's the seal of God. Yes. I have always thought that the mark of the beast on the forehead, for example, would be willfully disobeying disobedience to God, and the mark of the beast on the hand would be working, physical, what you do as, you know, purposely against God. So I like where he's going with this. What he's suggesting is that the, the difference between the mark of the beast on the forehead and hand, mark of the beast on the forehead means something that you believe in your mind, you believe it to be true, you accept it into your character, you practice that method. Whereas on the hand, you don't believe it, but you go along with it, you act it out because it's convenient for you to do it. So it's a work that you do, even though you don't believe it's right. You're just going along for convenience sake. And uh, I wouldn't disagree with that, but let's uh, dig deeper into what it actually is. Um, here's another quote. This is out of Review and Herald, April 27, 1911. Why are men not interested to know what constitutes the mark of the beast? 
Exodus 31, 12 through 17, the Sabbath question will be the issue in the great conflict in which all the world will act apart. My questions so far. I want to come back to her, her quote in a minute. How does the entire world act apart in the Sabbath question? Will Muslims give up Friday and start worshiping on Sunday? What about agnostics and atheists? Or is it these two days stand as signs of something more? And everyone will choose one or the other of two methods of which these days stand as symbols. Do you see where I'm going with this? Do you see the question I'm asking? Christ died to save sinners, not in their sins, but from their sins. This is a quote from her, my, my comment. Imposed law constructs. Remember, we've talked in here a lot about God's design, his law of love, the way he built the universe to run in harmony with his own nature and character is the law of God versus in a Roman imperial imposed law list of rules that are enforced by an imposing authority. The imposed law constructs of religion construct, uh, teach that we are not saved from our sins. They teach we're saved in our sins. We're saved from the legal penalty but not saved from the sinfulness that drives us until the day that Christ comes and changes us. That we continue to live sinfully, but that's okay. Our sins are legally pardoned. All sins committed past, present, and future have been nailed to Christ at the cross. They've been paid for by Christ. He has paid the penalty, and if we accept that penalty, it's put into your account in heaven so that we continue to live in sin, but don't worry about it because you can have forgiveness and all those sins are paid for. Or, in some versions, you continue to live in sin, but you go to your priest and you confess your sin, and every time you do, it's wiped, you know, you're, you're, you're cleansed by the application of the, the various sacraments that are applied to, uh, cleanse you from it. But you're not, you're not delivered from or saved from sin. But that's not the gospel. The truth is that God actually transforms us here and now. We stop living selfishly and we start living to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength in your neighbor as yourself. We love others more than self. The transformational motivation that happens in the heart. We start living godly. So back to the quote. The warning given in Revelation shows us the terrible consequence of transgression. By lips that will not lie, God's law is declared to be holy, just, and good. Our duty to obey this law is to be the burden of the last message of mercy to the world. Think about that for a minute. Our our duty to obey this law is to be the burden of the last message of mercy to the world. When you hear that phrase, the last message of mercy to the world, does any other, you know, did your computer go, hey, there's another phrase that uses, there's another quote that uses that exact language. Does, does it pull it up into your mind? I, I've footnoted it here. This is out of Christ's Object Lessons 4.15. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory in their own life and character, they are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. So back to the thing. Our duty is to obey the law. Our duty to obey the law is to be the burden of the last message of mercy to the world. Do you hear what is being said here? I'll go on with, her, with this quote. God's law is not a new thing. It is not holiness created. Get your mind. It is not holiness created. 
but holiness made known. It is a code of principles expressing mercy, goodness, and love. It presents to fallen humanity the character of God and states plainly the whole duty of man. Do you hear what's being said here? Are you putting the pieces together? Our duty to obey the law is to live in harmony with the way God designed the universe to run, to be in harmony with his methods of giving, his methods of love, his methods of beneficence. Our life leads and reveals how God built things. This is our duty. And thus we reveal God's character. We glorify him because the character of Christ is reproduced in us. Continuing on with the quote, as it says, the fantastic quote, notice, I love this, if you think about it, the God's law is not a new thing. It is not holiness created, but holiness made known. The Ten Commandments, what does it mean? The Ten Commandments were not an imposed, legislated, enacted law. It was a communication device to reveal to darkened man the realities upon which God built his universe. So continue on in the quote, the Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. This command contains the principles of the first four precepts. And thou shalt love your neighbor as thyself. Upon these two great principles, the word of God declares, hang all the law and the prophets. Again, the Ten Commandments were a communication device to reveal the holiness or the law of love already in existence upon which life was built. Continuing with the quote, These principles are made known by the third angel's message which declare that the Creator has always required and always will require obedience to his royal law. Why? Which law construct do you hear that through? Do you hear it through the natural law? He always requires it just like he always requires you breathe. The Creator always requires you breathe. Why does he require you breathe? Because that's how he built life to operate. Why does he require harmony with his law of love? Because that's how life exists. Breaking his law destroys you and kills you. Or you can hear it through the imposed law contract, like Roman emperor. He requires obedience because if you don't, you show him disrespect, and as the ruling authority, he must impose punishments on you, and he has to punish disobedience. He's always required obedience to his royal law. But this law has been disregarded and transgressed and is now being ignored by the churches. Human enactments are are placed where God's law should be. Sunday, a child of the papacy, has taken the place of God's holy Sabbath. As Nebuchadnezzar made a golden image and set it up to be worshipped by all, so Sunday is placed before the people as to be regarded as sacred. This day bears no vestige of sanctity, yet it is up is held up to be honored by all. Does that get confusing there? And we're talking natural law. And then suddenly this comes flying in here. Where, where does that come from? How is it connected? Think, think through with me. What is the implication of changing the Bible Sabbath to Sunday? What does the act mean in regard to how God and his government are understood? How can a church vote to change the day of worship? Something must first happen. What must first happen concerning God's law before the church votes to change the day? What church committee has ever voted to change the law of gravity? The law of thermodynamics? The law of respiration? Why do they not vote to change these laws? Because they understand these are natural laws, construction protocols about how which life was built. So what does it mean if an ecclesiastical board votes to change the Sabbath? 
that they believe God's law is imposed and therefore believe God is like a Roman emperor, a cosmic dictator imposing laws and enforcing those laws. And accepting this change in the law is the root of the beast system. Amen. That's the root. Accepting that God imposes laws. And therefore, if it's an imposed law, like our legislators impose laws, they can be amended, they can be changed. But if the law is how God built things to run, it can't be changed. It can't be abrogated. It can't be uh, altered. So let's review. What makes the Sabbath holy? What significance is it that the Sabbath was made or created? It was made or created. It was not legislated any more than any other aspect of God's creation. The earth was made. Animals were made. Angels were made. Mankind was made. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made. Get your mind around that idea. It's It, it exists. It is something created. When was the Sabbath made? When man was made. At the end of creation week, right after man was made. What was happening in the universe when the Sabbath was made? What was happening? War. War over who was stronger. No, it wasn't over who was stronger. Satan never challenged God to an arm wrestling contest in heaven. No, what was the war over? The use of power. How God uses power. Whether he can be trusted with power. So think through the significance. God makes the Sabbath. And, And whose Sabbath is this? It was made for man, but whose is it? It's the Sabbath of the Lord your God. It's his Sabbath made for us. So what does it mean? His Sabbath, what did he do? Think through with me. What does that mean? Context of a war. Context of the assault on his right to rule. He's all powerful. What does he do with his power? He rests. What does he do with power? Hey, he's being, he's being attacked. He's being assaulted. His, his right to rule is being undermined. What does he do with power? He attacks or he rests? Take it through. He rests. He lays his power aside. He stops promoting his cause. He's, he's not coercing. He's not pressuring. He's not intimidating. He's not forcing. He rests. He stops. He's still. He's quiet. He says, hey, universe, take 24 hours aside. You've seen the evidence we've given in creation of man, this little microcosm, this theater, spectacle to angels to men. Now, think for yourself. I rest. No pressure for me. No pressure for me. What does it say about God? That in the context of this assault on his rulership, rather than using power to coerce, to pressure, to force, to intimidate, he rests. He stops. He lays back. He gives us freedom. He creates this day that exists as evidence of his way of ruling. How does he rule? Truth presented in love, leaving beings free the Sabbath is embodied with his very elements of his character. It's created to reveal his, his nature. Days one through six, we, re, we learn God has power. Day seven reveals the nature of the one who wields the power. He doesn't coerce. He doesn't intimidate. He reveals how he handles opposition, how he treats enemies, how he deals with allegations and rebellion. He gives us freedom. The Sabbath gives us freedom. 
The Sabbath is made, was made as further evidence of God's character of love, truth presented in love, leaving us free. Leaving us free. What is the significance that the Sabbath then points us to remember our creator? To remember the context, as we just described, but also points us to creation. And how does creation operate? On what kind of law? Remember how he built things to run. Remember the creator. He built it to run like this. On what law? The law of love. This is not an imposed list of rules. It's not Roman. It's not imperial. What do we learn when we realize that Jesus rested in the tomb during the Sabbath? What do we learn? More evidence was given. The life of Christ, the ultimate evidence of the cross. And again, what does he do? He rests. He proved it. And he rests to let us think. To let us think. To let the unlooking universe think and contemplate, come to a decision. The war, the Bible says, is being fought in the mind. Therefore, the Sabbath stands symbolic as a sign, as evidence of those who value God's law of love and practice his methods of presenting the truth in love, leaving other people free. These are Sabbath keepers. Then what is the mark of the beast? Get this. This is Review and Herald, July 13, 1897. The time has come for the true light to shine amid moral darkness. The third angel's message has been sent forth to the world, warning men against receiving the mark of the beast or of his image in their foreheads or on in their hands. To receive the mark of the beast means, what do you think it means? Get ready for this. See how many times you've heard this. To receive the mark of the beast means to come to the same decision as the beast has done and to advocate the same ideas in direct opposition to the word of God. Wait a minute. Hold on. What happened to Sunday? You see, it's bigger than just a day. It's bigger. Those people who put Christ on the cross and worshipped on the right day came to the same decision the beast did, that Christ is not godly. That Christ doesn't represent God's kingdom. They like a kingdom of power, a kingdom of coercion. And then they practice the methods that the beast does, the message of coercive governmental force to, to punish those who disagree with them. Yet they worshipped on the Sabbath. So what decision did the beast make and what ideas did it advocate that are in direct opposition to God's word? At the heart that God's law is imposed. That's the heart of it. And as an imposed law, it can be changed, amended, abrogated, altered. Thus, under the imposed law construct, Sunday can be changed, Sabbath can be changed to Sunday. And imposed laws require judicial proceedings, investigation of records, judgments, imposed punishments, infliction of suffering and torment and death. Therefore, coercive pressure is used to punish lawbreakers and ensure obedience. This is the B system. Sunday being established upon the basis of imposed law becomes a sign or insignia or mark of those who practice such methods. Are you with me so far? Have I lost you? So Muslims who would kidnap and kill people who believe differently, who would gain governmental power to enforce their religious laws but never worship on Sunday are still practicing the methods of the beast and thus will receive the mark of the beast. Seventh-day Adventists who worship on the Bible Sabbath but teach the Sabbath as an arbitrary test of obedience, that it's an imposed law by an imposed lawgiver, imposing lawgiver, and present God as an imperial dictator who must impose punishments, will, like the Pharisees 2,000 years ago, oppose the kingdom of love and receive the mark of the beast. Which is what? I just read it to you. Coming to the same conclusions about God and his law and advocating the same ideas about God. That's what the mark of the beast is. 
the Sabbath being established in the context of an assault on God's rulership as a day filled with evidence, leaving beings free, stands as a symbol or sign of God's character of love. Pointing to creation reminds us of the natural law God built life to operate upon, and pointing to the cross reminds us of God's selflessness in his use of power. Thus, the issue at the end, of which the two days stand as signs, is the issue of God's law of love versus Satan's imposed law construct. God's rule of love versus Satan's rule of fear and selfishness. God's natural law versus worldly imposed laws. It comes down to the two methods one practices, and the two days are symbolic of the two methods. Here's another quote. Review on Herald, August 18, 1896. In striking contrast to the wrong and oppressive to the wrong and oppression so universally practiced were the mission and work of Christ. Earthly kingdoms are established and upheld by physical force, but this was not to be the foundation of the Messiah's kingdom. In the establishment of his government, no carnal weapons were to be used, no coercion practiced, no attempt would be made to force the consciences of men. These are the principles used by the prince of darkness for the government of his kingdom. His agents are actively at work seeking in their human independence to enact laws which are in direct contrast to Christ's mercy and loving kindness. Prophecy has plainly stated the nature of Christ's kingdom. He planned a government which would use no force. His subjects would know no oppression. A little parenthetical statement by me. His government uses how much force? None. How much oppression? So there, so his government doesn't arrest, doesn't detain, doesn't impose punishments, doesn't use force, doesn't execute in the end, doesn't threaten. That's not his government. That's the government of Satan. So when you hear these constructs that God is going to have a judgment, you're going to stand in front, there's going to be a committee that's going to decide how much sin you haven't been pardoned for, and then they're going to inflict the punishment, you're going to be tortured so many days in the flames of fire before God kills you. Which God are they presenting? Satan's version of God. This is not biblical. His subjects would know no oppression. The symbols of earthly governments are wild beasts. But in the kingdom of Christ, men are called upon to behold not ferocious beasts, but the Lamb of God. Not as a fierce tyrant did he come, but as the Son of Man, not to conquer the nations by his iron power, but to preach good tidings unto the meek, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to them that are bound, to comfort all that mourn. He came as a divine restorer, bringing to oppressed and downtrodden humanity the rich and abundant grace of heaven, that by the power of his righteousness, man fallen and degraded, though he was, might be a partaker of divinity. What is being described there? What kind of law is he operating upon? What method is he using? Do you notice that this description of Christ's work is not to come to some legal transaction, to pay a penalty in a court of law. His work is to come to actually heal, to rebuild, to restore, to regenerate, to recreate, to cleanse, to renew, to transform, that we can become partakers of divinity. It's to put us in harmony back with, with the way he built his universe to run. Those who promote a God who acts like a Roman emperor, who imposes law, who inflicts punishment, are actively promoting the system of the beast. 
And they're preparing the world to accept Satan as the great counterfeit when he comes. Because he's going to come and he's going to speak melodious words. And he's going to start by doing miracles and speaking kindly and tenderly. But then he's going to come and say, but you know what? Um, I'm, I'm only asking that you recognize me as your creator and worship and give your heart affection to me. But you know what? If you don't, justice requires if you insist on disobeying me, I, I'm, I'm patient with you now. I'll give you time to consider, but at the end, justice will require, well, let's, let's give you some discipline first. We're going to put you in prison. We're going to imprison you. You can't buy or sell, save those who have loyalty to me and follow my methods, you see. And if you won't do it, we'll, we'll imprison you. But if you still refuse, well, justice will require that we execute you. Do you understand what I just said is what is taught in our churches? That one day there's going to be an investigation. We're going to stand before the great white throne. And God says, in justice, it's required that I torture you and kill you. That is no different than what Satan is going to do. And it's a lie. The scripture is clear that God's law is the law of love. The law of love. Romans 13.10. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfillment of the law. Galatians 5.14. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. James 2.8. If you keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. Jesus, we already quoted, love your Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, all law hangs upon these. That's Matthew 12, 37 through 40. Proverbs, in the way of righteousness there is life. Along that path is immortality. Why is there life and immortality along the path of righteousness? Because that's the path upon which God built his universe to run. He could be saying, along the way of regular breathing there is life. <laughs> Okay, that's how he built it to run. That's what it's saying. He who pursues, or this is Proverbs 21, 21. He who pursues righteousness and love finds life. Isn't that awesome? If you think about it. Now, that doesn't work under an imposed law construct. But that works when you understand love is the basis upon which life was constructed to operate. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, healing, restoring. Psalms 19, 7. And history supports the change in God's law was a change from natural law of love to an imposed law construct. And I've got a couple of quotes in here. I won't read them to you today because I've read them before. One is uh, about how Constantine began imposing laws to punish those who weren't Christians, and the bishops at that time went along with and supported the use of state power. Where was the bishops? What, where were the bishops coming back and saying, "Wait, Romans teaches us that every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. Let's leave those who disagree with our religious views free to come up to their own conclusion." No, they used the, the power of the state. And then the first Christian historian, Eusebius, came to his own theology, and it's uh, in the final quote. It just says, "With the Roman monarchy, with the Roman Empire, monarchy had come on earth." the image of the monarchy in heaven. The first Christian historian understands God's government to be like the Roman government on earth. That's an image of the government of heaven. Exactly what, this is what happened, and Christianity deviated when this happened from God's created natural law of love to this imposed Roman construct. So what is the mark of the beast? Regarding God as the beast does and using the methods of the beast, which is teaching God imposes law, and as the imposer of law must impose penalties, and therefore must be appeased, and using power to coerce and punish those who disagree. This is the beast. Examples in history? The Inquisition. Burning people at the stake, done by both Catholic and Protestant. Salem witch trials. 
Islamic Sharia law enforcement in governments today. Now, here's another quote from one of the founders of our church. Consider this in light of what we've already discussed. This is out of third manuscript release 189, written in November 1889. Be sure the Sabbath is a test question, and how you treat this question places you on either God's side or Satan's side. The mark of the beast is to be presented in some shape to every institution and every individual. The mark of the beast is to be presented in some shape. You hear that word? In some shape. Does that mean it will necessarily be Sunday? Not necessarily. Every individual will be presented with this idea. Do we believe God is an imposer of authoritarian imposed law and therefore coerces and pressures and inflicts punishments upon and therefore we will practice that and we will think it is righteous to get a hold of government and pass laws to force people to, to consciences to obey and, and, and behave the way we want in some way. And maybe that's in an Islamic country, the Sharia law, which I read this week in the Yahoo News, a 15-year-old girl was uh, sentenced to... How many lashes? 100 lashes for premarital sex. And the court said she had the choice of getting those lashes now or waiting until she's 18. 100 lashes. Premarital sex. What did the guy get? The guy? The guy didn't get anything. Isn't that interesting? 2,000 years ago, a woman caught in adultery thrown down on Christ's feet. Where was the man caught with her? Why wasn't he thrown down there? Yes, in the back. Um, on the phrase, the mark of the beast, as I've thought about that in the past, I've changed one word in that phrase that has make, that, that's made that phrase really jump out as to which side of the podium it's on, whether it's imposed law or the natural law, and that's to change it to say the mark of a beast. What's the mark of a beast? compared to the thinking process that is supposed to go on with us as humans. You know, we, we get to the point where we accept what somebody tells us and we do what they tell us or they chain us up or put us in a cage and eventually we get to the point where at the very end we come to that conclusion that Satan wants us to come to because we have adopted the characteristics of a beast all the way along. I like this very much, especially when you put, put it to what I read earlier about all the governments of the earth are represented as ferocious and wild beasts. Okay, I like this. The, 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 uh, the people who rejected God and, and, and the gospel message, Peter describes them as brute beasts, creatures of instinct. And how do beasts act? They act on the survival of the fittest instinct. They attack, they destroy, they coerce, they, they kill to protect their own. I like this very much, the mark of the beast. Yes, we become beastly and practice these methods. That's very nice. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so how is the Sabbath a test question? Presented in some shape to every institution? Is it merely every everybody will be told to worship this day or that day? Or is it that in some way, everybody will come to have to decide on which methods they're going to practice in their life? Truth, love, and freedom, or coercive pressure to force people to do it your way? Yes? Don't you think that one Sabbath when Jesus was in the grave, it was like a cosmic clock? And everyone had to, not just on earth that knew about Jesus, but everyone in the whole universe paused to think about 
Who's right here? They finally, the culmination of the war in heaven was finally over. Jesus was dead. I, I agree and, completely. And then this Sabbath was a day of rest for that. To Again. Begin. Yes. Notice what he did. Just like at creation week, he rests. He just proved his case, but he didn't get up and, and, and go make a big deal. He rests and let people contemplate and reflect. This is what he does with power. After John 13, all power was given to him. And what did he do with power in John 13? He washed dirty feet. So over and over again, we see that the Sabbath is is created or made as evidence of how God uses power. Yes. Yes, right there. Okay. A departure from Sabbath observance didn't happen overnight just by a governmental decrease as it is being proposed. It happens subtly. It grew out of a attitude of anti-Semitism, which happened a long time ago, which found in the fourth century church fathers advocating very, very hideous language against the Jews, quote-unquote. And uh, so believers, Gentiles, <coughs> began to disassociate themselves with anything has to do or resemble anything to Judaism, including Sabbath observance. So it didn't happen overnight. It took a long time. Yes. So I don't dispute that at all. Much more than they, it was an attitude much more than a decree. And what I'm trying to say is that 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 the uh, that those influences you just described, why is it that the the anti-Semitism came? What methods? Because remember, the Jews now that we're talking about are the Jews that rejected Christ, because the Jews who accepted Christ became Christian. Okay, so the anti-Semitism you're describing in the first centuries after Christ were Jews who rejected Christ. Okay, and what method did they look at God's law? The Pharisees described in Scripture. How did they approach the law of God? As the design protocols upon which life was built, or as an imposed law system of rules that must be kept? When, when, they, when the disciples picked grain on Sabbath, what, what, you, you see the attitude of the Pharisees, you saw the attitude of Christ. What were the attitude of the Pharisees? You broke the rules. The rules say you're not allowed. Christ said, hey, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is, hunger is a natural thing. You're not doing anything wrong by picking some grain. How about the woman, how about his healing? When Christ healed on Sabbath, did he heal only the emergencies that would die if he didn't wait? Or did he heal the man who had been paralyzed for 38 years? That could wait till another day. Why didn't he? He purposely did this type of healing on Sabbath to expose the falseness of the imposed law construct that the Jews had come to live by. They had accepted the lie as well that God's law was imposed. And after Christianity and those who accepted Christ and lived, and you look at how the New Testament churches described, they lived in love, giving of themselves to help each other. They wouldn't force or coerce people. They gave their life as martyrs. Now, they weren't all perfect, but this is the general principle track, a, a, a law of love process. We see the text from scriptures that I quoted, how the apostles described God's law. And then we contrast that with what the those who rejected Christ and remained Jewish were doing. They were in war. They were rebelling. They were constantly picking up arms and attacking against the system and the state. Were they not? Yes, they were repeatedly. And this caused hostility from the state, and people wanted to alienate from them. Why? Because they operated under imposed law construct. Still there. It comes out in their behavior. And that then fueled the anti-Semitism. 
If they would have been living loving, gracious lives, giving and building up like the Good Samaritan described, and they were living that way to the society, there wouldn't have been anti-Semitism. There was anti-Semitism because they were basically not nice people. They were constant rebellion. Wednesday's and Thursday's lesson talks about judgment. Oh, Wendell, you want to say something? Um, trying to speak for those who aren't here to bring up things. And, you know, this, this really makes sense as far as why Sabbath is important, why I can't change Sabbath. Um, but there's a lot of dark speech in the Bible. And in, in Revelation, it talks about Christ is ruling with an iron scepter to crush the nations. That sounds kind of arbitrary and, and enforced and whatnot. Why is that language there? Yes, who, who, who is the message for? What, what, what did God say in Hosea about Israel? He said, they are stubborn like a mule. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? When you're stubborn and hard-hearted, or they constantly call them stiff-necked and hard-hearted. Stephen called them the same thing. When you have your heart so hard, and I can tell you dealing with addicts who have high levels of denial, uh, in, in, in the therapeutic modes that deal with addicts versus, say, someone who is maybe more anxiety-prone, doesn't have addiction, have lots of insecurities, they feel bad about themselves and this type of thing, addicts live in a high level of denial, and anybody who's worked with addicts will tell you it takes a hammer, it takes an iron rod to break through their self-deception, their lies, their denial, to break them to the point they're willing to accept they've got a problem. So you have to speak very firm and strong language to addicts, whereas someone else who's got a tender heart, you can speak gentle words to. So God wants to save everybody, regardless of the level of their alienation from him. And so he speaks words that need to be heard by the, by the audience that he's speaking. At the end of time, there's, this is the last, final, desperate message before they're completely lost. Yes? Yeah, continuing on that point, David, who's described as a man after God's heart, says, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Yes. It's the same rod. Yes, and, and, and actually the, the, the language is the shepherd's rod. Yes. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a scepter. It's a shepherd's rod. And what does the shepherd's rod do? It crushes the wolves and rescues the lambs. That's what the shepherd's rod does. So it is used to, to comfort those who are on his side and those who would destroy his children. He protects with the shepherd's rod. And the wolf proceeds as a rod of iron. Yes. So, um, in Wednesday and Thursday's lesson, I'm not going to read the quotes, but the quotes are there um, about the judgment is coming. We are called to worship the one who created the heavens and the earth and look at the theme of judgment here. The Bible, um, God's judgment is not just against the wicked, but also in favor of the righteous, uh, quoting, uh, referencing Daniel chapter 7. I thought we ought to look at Daniel chapter 7, and this will tie back into the Sabbath, and, and I'm hopefully I can get all this together before we run out of time. Daniel 7 says, I, I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others, and that eyes of, uh, eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And I watched the, this horn wage, was waging war against the saints and defeating them. Okay, who's the horn? The beast. Okay, notice he's defeating the saints until the ancient of days came and, and this is the NIV version, pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He will, and talking about the little horn, he will speak against the Most High, oppress his saints, and try to change the set times and the laws. And we, what are we talking about earlier in the class today? 
a power that attempts to change God's law, right? That's this power. He wars against the saints and defeats them until a time comes. What's the time comes? When the NIV says until judgment was pronounced, and those who prefer a legal model, the imposed model, will say until God sits in heaven and pronounces the judgment in favor of them. This is the King, this is the King James Version. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. Which translation is more accurate? Well, the, the Hebrew actually, that is translated pronounced in the NIV, actually means to give or to impart. And thus the King James Version in this text is more accurate. Why do the saints need judgment, which is another word for discernment, imparted to them? They're being defeated until the Ancient of Days imparts judgment, gives judgment, until judgment is given to the saints. How, what is this war? For those who live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument, pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. Where is the war being fought? In our minds. How did this little horn power wage war against the saints and defeat them? By filling our minds with lies about God, particularly getting us to accept that God's law is imposed and God is like a Roman emperor. And he's defeated us until the day came when enough truth had been recovered that the Holy Spirit can lighten our minds with that truth to give us judgment. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment. The hour in which we can rightly judge who God really is has come. Just a question. Are you quoting uh, Daniel 11? Daniel 7. 7, okay. Right. If I remember correctly, uh, and you... Basically, no. Definitely no. That Jewish people okay. use cryptic language to describe God and to talk about God. Mm-hmm. For instance, to avoid mentioning His name, they use, they they call him the unnamed one. Okay. Right. Also, the Most High, uh, throne in heaven, reference to God. Now, the saints, the Most High. If I remember correctly, the Old Testament. Is making direct reference to the nation of Israel, not to us, not to the entire world, but not to say the Adventist or Baptist, but to a Jewish nation to whom the prophecy is given and reference of is made. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a nice theory, but when we actually look at the history of Daniel and they put it in the context, this is a prophecy that at the end of the book God said, "Seal up this prophecy until the end of time." So this wasn't for the Jewish nation. This was for the people at the end of time. It was going to be sealed until that time. And if you look at the history of the prophecy and how it plays out with the, with the, with the history of the nations that are actually described in the book, Babylon, Medo-Persia, um, Greece, followed by Rome, followed by the Hor- This is a, a portrayal of history unfolding. This is not just for the Jewish people. This is a, a description of a conflict happening on a worldwide level of which all people are playing a part. Okay, one question to you, then. May I ask a question, sir? Sure. All right. Where was Jewish nation at the time Daniel received the vision? In, I believe they were in captivity. Whose power were they under? Ultimately, God says in Daniel, God sets up rulers and he overthrows rulers. At that time. God sets up rulers and God overthrows rulers. At the, no, at the time they were in captivity. Yes. Whose power were they under? At the Persia, I believe. Babylon. 
I think it was Persia by the time this vision came. Originally, when they were given all the prophecies. Now, yes, they were still in captivity in Babylon when Daniel received the vision. If I remember correctly, during the second temple, the first, yeah, first temple period. Okay. Yes, they were in captivity, if I remember correctly. So, if the property concerned the status, condition of the nation under captivity, seeking, begging, imploring God for revelation, revelation as far as the end of the captivity, which Jeremiah prophesied was 70 years, okay? And they were being oppressed under the Babylonians. They were highly persecuted under the Greeks during the Hellenistic age. Okay, do you have a question? Yes. What's the question? The question is this. Why do we uh, interpolate and bring the terminology sense amongst heights when it is making direct reference in the Old Testament, all the way through the Old Testament, to the Jewish nation, to superimpose that name to the Adventist Church or any other religious organization? See, one of the mistakes many people make in studying the Old Testament is failing to realize that the Jewish nation was not a select group selected for salvation. They were an acting troop to act out a theater that taught the, great, the plan of salvation in the setting of the great controversy. And God gave them a script, he gave them a theater, he gave them costumes, and he had them act out that play and that drama. And in that drama, the children of Israel, the, ten, the, uh, the 11 tribes other than the, the Levites, represented all the peoples of the world. The entire world were represented by the 11 tribes. The tribe of the Levites represented those who have accepted Christ, the priesthood of believers. And therefore, when that trauma was acted out, it's teaching the plan for the whole world. And as the Old Testament teaches, that they were to be a teaching book so that all nations would come and be worshipers of the true God and uh, at his temple. It didn't happen because they failed to understand their own purpose. And many people reading the Old Testament failed to understand that purpose and draw these distortions that make it um, God more of an um, a, a exclusionist in which the Jewish people, by genetics, have some advantage over the rest of us who are not Jewish. This is a distortion, and it happens because they fail to understand the purpose of why God called those people in the Old Testament in the first place. So I'm, I appreciate you bringing that up. gives us an opportunity to clarify that. But I do want to finish a couple points from the lesson today to bring home a couple of things. Um, Paul talks about this little horn power, when he says the man of sin shall come and set himself up against God and oppose everything that is God, setting himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Remember this? This is in 2 Thessalonians. Which temple was that? This was, this was the spirit temple. This wasn't the temple in heaven. The Jewish temple is, is not the Jewish temple when this happens. It's already been destroyed. Okay? So the temple that this man of sin sets himself up, proclaiming himself to be God, is the spirit temple. Okay? Daniel, uh, Paul is describing the exact same events of Daniel 7 where the little horn will fight against the saints and will defeat them. The same events are being described here. In the spirit temple, um, therefore, this 2300-year prophecy to cleanse the temple is to cleanse our minds from where where, where Satan has set himself up in the distortions about God. So here's another quote from Ellen White. This is out of um, Life Sketches, page 236. The temple of God was opened in heaven. I was shown the ark covered uh, with the mercy seat. Two angels stood on either end of the ark with their wings spread over the seat and their faces turned toward it. This represented all the heavenly hosts looking with reverential awe towards the law of God. Notice, here we have symbolism. Two angels represent the entire heavenly host. It's a symbol. 
represent the whole heavenly host looking reverentially towards the law of God, which had been written by the finger of God. Jesus raised the cover of the ark, and I beheld the tables, the stone in which the Ten Commandments are written. I was amazed as I saw the fourth commandment, because we're talking about the Sabbath today, at the very center of the ten precepts with a soft halo of light encircling it. Said the angel, it is the only one of the ten which defines the living God who created the heavens and the earth and all things that are therein. When the foundation of the earth was laid, then also was laid the foundation of the Sabbath. This is a great quote for those who think the Sabbath has always been in existence. Not only do we have the history of Genesis where it was made, but here also it was, it was made. It wasn't always in existence. The man of sin who exalted himself above God and thought to change times and laws brought about a change in the Sabbath from the seventh day to the first day of the week. In doing this, he made a breach in the law of God. Just prior to the great day of God, a message is sent forth to warn the people to come back to their allegiance to the law of God, which Antichrist has broken down. Attention must be called to the breach in the law by precept and example. I was shown that the third angel proclaiming the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus represents the people who receive the message and raise a voice of warning to the world to keep the commandments of God and his law as the apple of his eye. Can, can you put that together with everything we've described here? This is a symbolism. It's, it's, it's symbolic. You see in heaven an ark with, with angels, and that's symbolism. It's not literal. That's a symbol because it, it says right there, it represents all the heavenly hosts which were not seen in the vision. And in the ark is seen the law with a halo around it. And what does that represent? What's the New Testament say where, where God's law will be written? This is representing the people who have the law of God written on the heart and mind, and thus they practice the Sabbath. They present truth in love and leave people free, just like God did. They are Sabbath observers, not just as the Jews of, of Old Testament or Christ's day who would kill the Savior and then uh, uh, stop their work for 24 hours. That's not a Sabbath observer. That's a beast observer. It's a person who will never use coercive pressure to force the conscience of another. Amen. That's what the heart must look like. God is waiting for a people who can present the truth in love and leave people free, who live out his character in the way we treat each other. Not a people who have a list of rules, a legalistic system that they must abide by, who believe that if you don't keep the rules, God is keeping a list of everything, and then he's going to inflict punishments upon you for it. That's the beast system. There was some more stuff in the lesson that we didn't get to. We just finished Sabbath lesson. Now it's time to go to Monday. Um, <laughs> our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are exactly as Jesus revealed, that you are a God who, who has infinite power, all power, but after presenting truth and love, you rest. You give us freedom to think, to consider. You get down on your knees and wash feet with power. You surrender power. No one can take your life, but you give it freely because you want us to trust you and love you, and you've earned our love and trust, Lord. We pray now that uh, we can, the Holy Spirit will come and and knit together into our minds the, the various pieces of truth given over time through your various penmen and prophets that we can understand the truth of your kingdom on a deeper level, and we can live that truth that the, the law will be written upon our hearts and minds and that we can go out and shine forth the reality of what the Sabbath is a sign of, a methodology, a way that you govern truth, love, and freedom, and that we can help free minds who are caught up into a system, regardless of which day they're on, of a system of coercive pressure that forces other people, that we can win them to your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.